Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of What the Politics. Today, we are joined by Bethany McLean, and she is a journalist, and she covered the 2008 financial crisis, and she also covered a few of the the characters in that crisis, as well as the Enron scandal. But today, we are talking about the 2008 financial crisis. I am super excited to have her join us because I have been reading her books. Um, One of them is called All the Devils Are Here, and the other one is called The Smartest Guys in the Room. So I'm going to go ahead and let our guest introduce herself. Sure, I'm Bethany McLean. I'm a longtime journalist. I cover mainly stories of business gone wrong, and I've written a couple books. Business has gone wrong. So let's let's talk about yes. the, right into the topic that, that we're going to cover today, which is the 2008 financial crisis. Now, there's a lot of blame to go around. Some say Wall Street, some say Main Street, and some say even Pennsylvania Avenue, which is um, the president, of course. Who do you think um, has has the, the most responsibility in, in that crisis? So when my colleague Jenna Sarah and I wrote a book about the financial crisis, we called it All the Devils Are Here. <laughs> and it's a line from Shakespeare, of course, Hell is Empty and All the Devils Are Here. But we, we were trying to get at the, the idea that there were a lot of people who were responsible, a lot of players who were responsible, just as you're saying. And I think it's difficult for me to say, to single out any one person, because it really was multifactorial, and it took the coming together of all of these um, all of these actors to, to cause the crisis. They're, the duty they're supposed to owe to investors, because they can get paid so much money by uh, rating these packages of um, subprime mortgages with, with AAA ratings. And they, they knew what they were doing. They knew these packages of mortgages didn't warrant a, tri- a AAA rating, and they, they, they did it anyway because because they were making so much money in this business. Um, I'd include the former chairman of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, who everybody forgets the Fed has two roles. One is monetary policy, and the other one is more than two roles. But one is monetary policy, and the other is regulatory. And the Fed simply didn't regulate. They had the chance to rein in some prime lending under a 1994 law, but Greenspan just wouldn't believe. It didn't suit his ideology to believe that lenders would make loans to people who couldn't pay them back. And I could go on and on, but I'll but I'll pause at that and let you ask questions. So you mentioned, you know, a driving factor being money. Um, so what do you think is the main driving factor? Is it money, envy, fear of these institutions? Um which of those three is, is the main driving factor, if you had to pick one? I'd say it's, it's, it's often money, but in sometimes a less obvious way than you'd think. Sometimes it's money because it's money. People take it as a sign that they're doing the right thing because they're making a lot of money. I think sometimes in a world where um, organized religion has fallen by the wayside, religion takes on also draining 
as all sorts of subterranean farms. And we worship money often in the bottom line as a as a substitute for actually doing the right thing. There's kind of an idea if it makes money, well, then it, it must be good in our supposedly free market system. Um, so that's a big part of it. I think self-delusion and rationalization are a few things you didn't mention, but they're very human characteristics. And people deceive themselves and they rationalize what they're doing and say, oh, well, everybody else around me is doing it or, oh, it'll be different this time or, oh, I can come up with a way to say in my brain that this is actually okay and this makes sense because I'm because I'm making so much money. But it's rarely, I suppose what I'm trying to get at is rarely as simple as just money. Rarely do people look in the mirror and say, I am doing completely the wrong thing here, but I'm getting paid so much money that I'm going to keep doing it anyway. People deceive themselves because of the money. It does. And kind of just going along that line, do you think that people deceive themselves, like the people who are involved who weren't aware of of some of the factors happening? For example, like the everyday average American person, do you think they they were in a way also kind of self-deceiving themselves when they tried getting into a few of the um, a, a few of the issues that that led to this crisis? Well, I think I think yes and no. So homeowners um, have gotten some blame. And I even wrote a piece in op-ed for the New York Times in the wake of the crisis, essentially saying, look, homeowners deserve some blame for this, too, because people took out mortgages they, they couldn't afford um, and they couldn't pay back. I've come to have a slightly more nuanced view of that in that. Yes, if we don't have personal responsibility, then we're dead. And people did take out mortgages. They, they couldn't afford to pay back. On the other hand, the marketing from financial institutions was quite intense. I remember in the years after the crisis, driving through Chicago and seeing in neighborhoods with boarded up houses a tattered sign flapping in the wind from a lender saying, let your home take you on vacation. And in the face of a barrage of advertising like that, it's, it's hard for people to stand up to that and say, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. This is wrong. I also think we sometimes as people are, are, are somewhat naive and we have a trust in authority figures and a trust in those in positions of power that, that really isn't warranted. So when your mortgage lender at your trusted financial institution says to you, yes, this is the right mortgage for you. Don't worry. You're going to be able to pay it. Of course you are. I wouldn't give you a product that didn't work for you. Most people aren't financially savvy enough and aren't cynical enough to say this person is lying to me. So, and the truth is that that there were a lot of people who walked into institutions, lending institutions, wanting safe 30-year fixed rate mortgages. And the lender had every incentive to put them in a risky, higher rate mortgage instead because the lender could make more money that way because they they could turn around and sell that mortgage to Wall Street for more money than they could sell a conventional 30-year fixed rate mortgage. So people were being sold. And I think that the institutions have to take some responsibility for that. In other words, I don't like the one-way responsibility game, which is it's all people's fault. And it doesn't matter that we told them to do, we pretended we were acting in their best interests and told them to do things that were completely stupid and we don't bear any blame for that. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of want to go into one of the specific characters uh, that you highlighted in your book, and that's Alan Greenspan. Can you, can you explain who he was? So Alan Greenspan was the chairman of the Federal Reserve um, for many years. He was once viewed as the most admired man in America. There were books written lauding his policies as chief of of the Fed. Um, 
because he, he got a lot of credit for the economic boom during during the Clinton era. Um, he was viewed as a as, as a wizard, but he was also an ideologue in in many ways. He was a devotee of Ayn Rand and uh, a libertarian. And, and his view was that he said after the crisis, he said, those of us who look to the self-interest of lending institutions um, are in a state of shock disbelief. He simply believed that banks wouldn't make mortgages to people who couldn't pay them back because it wasn't in the bank's interest to do so. And Wall Street firms wouldn't be buying up mortgages made to people who couldn't pay them back and selling them to investors because that that didn't make economic sense. And investors wouldn't be investing in these mortgages if they didn't make economic sense. And he wouldn't listen to what was actually happening, even though community advocates started coming to see him as early as the 1990s saying, look, there's a scrooge of bad lending going on in our communities where people are getting lured into um, mortgages they can't afford because the believe that if the people default on their mortgages, they can take the home back. And if home prices only go up, then they can sell the home for more than the original mortgage was. Mm. And and there was there was something else that you highlighted in your book that I think a lot of our listeners probably have heard in high school or even college if they took like an economic class, but that's laissez-faire capitalism. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what, what that is? I think it's Alan Greenstein really epitomizes that. It's the belief that it's the belief that everybody will always operate in the best interests of the system because their interests are aligned with the best interests of the system. So the idea that if something isn't good for society and good for consumers, well then it wouldn't make money. So if it's being sold and people are are, are buying it and it's making money, well then it, it must be good. Instead of looking at the perverse intent that in particular Wall Street often has to sell products that are terrible for people and to make money off products that ultimately destroy individuals and even firms. Mm-hmm. And then going on uh, a little bit further into kind of, I, I, would, I would guess, I don't know, I'm not the expert in this, but kind of like uh, the opposite of laissez-faire capitalism would be having more regulations. Would that be something that makes sense? So, so yes and no. It depends on what the regulations are. If they're just more, they're not necessarily better, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes more rules creates more opportunity to arbitrage the rules and the gaps and spaces between the rules lies opportunity and everybody rushes toward those gaps and spaces, thereby creating a financial crisis and the gaps between, between the rules. So more rules aren't necessarily better rules. Sometimes I think that clear and simple regulation is is better. So in the in, in the wake of the um, Great Crash in 1929, um, when FDR did the New Deal and put Glass-Steagall into place, it simply separated investment and commercial banking into two different businesses. They weren't allowed to be part of the same company. It was very, very just a rough cut, like down the middle. This is These two things are separate. And it, it wasn't that complicated. <laughs> and it got chipped away at over the years, and people complained that it didn't make sense because of this and that and this and that. And a lot of those complaints were probably right, or at least they had some validity to them, but it was very clear and simple. Um, since then, you know, even in the wake of the financial crisis, we instead did something called the Volcker Rule, named after the former chairman of the Fed, Paul Volcker, which aimed to say that 
banks couldn't engage in proprietary trading, trading just to make money for, for themselves. But the rules around it are so complicated that it makes enforcement really, really difficult. And so I've come to believe that sometimes really simple rough cut rules actually make a lot more sense than really nuanced, meticulous rules that try to account for every eventuality. Mm-hmm. And would it be correct in saying that Alan Greenspan wasn't necessarily a fan of regulations? He was not a fan of regulation. He believed that the market, and this is a, perhaps a better definition of laissez-faire, he believed the market would regulate itself because it simply wasn't in a company's interest to sell a shoddy product. And since it wasn't in the company's interest to sell a shoddy product, they, they wouldn't. He believed in kind of almost a nirvana version of capitalism in which only products that are good and, and make money for everybody will be allowed to exist. And competition will drive a race to the top as everybody tries to come up with better, smarter, um, more cost-effective products. And unfortunately, you can look time and time again, the world doesn't always work that way. There's often a race to the bottom, not a race to the top. Mm-hmm. Is he kind of, is Alan kind of walking a fine line of, ethics with his career and these regulations is he you know obviously he doesn't like a lot of regulations but is it kind of walking that fine line because he doesn't he thinks people will choose correctly for themselves so like a devil's advocate kind of role yeah i think that's part of it i think it's a deep ideological belief um on on his part and a deep belief that regulations can often do more more, more harm than good. Mm-hmm. I actually don't see him, and I'm not quite sure if this is what you were getting at, but I don't see him as a hypocrite at all. There are plenty of people out there who are hypocritical, who will believe one thing and say something else because it's in their financial interest to do so. I think Greenspan believed this to, to his core. Mm. Uh, I just don't think he was right. Mm. So what ended up happening to, to Greenspan? I think he is still living in D.C., running a consulting business. He's no longer, his reputation was badly singed slash destroyed by the financial crisis. So his legacy is not what it what it would have been. But, I mean, I think he's fine. Most of the, most of the devils we wrote about and all the devils are here escaped uh, any kind of punishment other than to their reputations. Yeah, that, that was something I did kind of want to follow up with, is that a lot of the people who played a role in, mm-hmm. in the financial crisis, it seems as if they, besides their reputations, not much else was taken from them. Nope. Mm-hmm. Nope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, and some part of that is, so there, there, there are a few things that work there. One is that there is a big difference between well, there's a big difference in the eyes of the law between criminal wrongdoing and ethical wrongdoing. I actually sometimes think ethical wrongdoing is, is worse than criminal wrongdoing because what's punishable by the criminal laws is quite it's quite specific. Um, and I think it would have been difficult to prosecute people in the wake of the financial crisis. These weren't easy cases. These weren't easy cases to make. That said, could the government have made them if they weren't worried about pushing the financial system off the precipice again by charging senior executives at these firms with with crimes? Probably. When there's a will, there's a way, particularly when it comes to the U.S. government um, making a criminal case. If they want to get you, they'll they'll get you. So they, they, they didn't want to. Some part of that is actually weirdly enough a legacy a legacy of the Enron years because in the wake of Enron the accounting firm Arthur Anderson was put out of business because the government did charge Arthur Anderson criminally 
and I think 80,000 or 90,000 people lost their jobs. And it became quite controversial, particularly once the Supreme Court overturned the criminal conviction of Arthur Anderson, but after it was too late to, for the firm to survive. And so all these people, many of whom were complicit and never even heard of Enron, lost their jobs. And so it made the government very leery of prosecuting another large corporation. So other than you know, these people losing their jobs, their reputation, you said, you know, the government didn't really want to go after them, um, prosecute them in any way. So is there any kind of other, I mean, incentive for people not to go this route? Uh, not not really. It was funny, I was emailing with a longtime source the other day, and he was talking about Credit Suisse, which just uh, lost a ton of money on this Argos hedge fund scandal, as well as a company called Greensill, where they were a lender and it ended up losing a lot of money. And his point was people keep doing these stupid things over and over again because someone in the system is, is making money. And and if you don't get charged with a crime and you've made your money, then you're incentivized to do the same thing over and over again. And so I, I think, unfortunately, stupidity and um, lack of ethics can appear like it pays in the short term. I think the main reasons not to do it are, one, you have to live with yourself. Um, two, you never actually know what it is that will provoke the government and they'll decide to come after you. <laughs> and you might end up being the um, the um, exception that proves the rule in terms of criminal prosecutions like like mm. like the Enron guys did. Um, but... But, but there are enough of these cases that people manage to wiggle out because the criminal, the, the, the laws, the laws surrounding what to actually constitutes a crime are, are, are difficult and technical enough. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to move forward to, to talk about um, President George Bush because he was president, you know, before this, for during this time and leading up to he played a, a factor. Um, what role did he have when it comes to the to the crisis? I don't really think much, to be honest. A lot of the factors that played into the crisis were put in motion many years before George Bush became president. Um, the refusal to regulate derivatives um, happened in the final years of the Clinton administration. Much of the expanded power and lack of control of Fannie Mae and um, Freddie Mac two big mortgage giants that had to be put into conservatorship um, during the crisis happened during the Clinton administration. Um, Greenspan was Treasury Secretary during the Clinton administration. Glass-Steagall, which was the uh, rule separating investment banking from commercial banking, was overturned in the Clinton administration. Um, So it's really hard to look at the administration of George Bush and say, or to look at Bush himself and say, He's, he's to blame for this. Mm-hmm. And then and then moving forward, kind of just to the aftermath, where we're, where we are now. So just a little bit of background context. Context. Emily and I were very, I think we were in like third grade yeah. when all this was happening. Like we have, we were just not, a, we just, we knew something was wrong, but we were not aware of what was going on and everything like this. And, and so we're kind of living in the aftermath of, of everything that's happened. But how would you say what the financial crisis, how it affected America, how it affected our country? and where we are headed. So I think it was I think it was a really bad thing for our country. First of all, it was a bad thing for America standing globally speaking, because we know he's touted our 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 incredible prowess in all things money. And for the this financial crisis that took down a lot of global institutions to have emanated essentially from 
um, American practices just is, is not a great thing. Suddenly it appears that this company, this country that touted the glories of capitalism and how sophisticated it was in finance and actually created these products that almost took down the global financial system. Well, that, that's not great. Um, I think it made people a lot more cynical, whether whether it was easy to prosecute people after the financial crisis or not. The fact that so many um, executives and people on Wall Street made so much money and walked away from this without any real repercussions while people around the country lost lost their homes leaves a bad taste of cynicism that I think will take decades to undo. Um, I think another form of cynicism that was created was we were all always told, mom, America, apple pie, and buy a house. And so a lot of people believe, do whatever you could to get a mortgage and to buy a house because that's what you were supposed to do as, as an adult. And, and, and then it turned out that no, this could be actually something quite financially destructive if you bought a really overpriced house or if your financial institution sold you a really bad mortgage that was going to blow up your life. And, and so I think when basic institutions like homeownership or getting education are undermined by false promises, it is, again, it breeds a kind of cynicism that I think is ultimately quite destructive and that and that we haven't recovered from. I guess another way to think about it is you guys were probably too young to remember the dot-com crisis in 99-2000 when the first wave of dot-coms, a lot of them went bankrupt and it destroyed people's savings. And it was a bad thing, but it also left behind it real innovation. Out of that came Google and Amazon, it came some real companies. And so even though there was some truly reprehensible stuff that happened during the first dot-com boom and in, in the collapse, it also left some, some good things. That to me is kind of the messiness of capitalism at work. The financial crisis, really what good came out of inflating home, home prices and then having a giant bubble that burst and almost took down the financial system. It's not like it left a new road behind or, you know, a group of people who had gotten an education who otherwise couldn't have gotten an education or a great new company that wouldn't have existed if it weren't for this. It just left destruction in its wake. And I think there's something there's something ultimately very tragic about that. Mm-hmm. So are, are there's still people dealing with this? I mean, obviously, I'm sure emotionally, there's still people reeling from the financial crisis, but are people still financially dealing with burdens from this crisis? Yeah, I hear from people who never quite got their lives back together. They lost their homes uh, due due, due to the financial crisis. A lot of people lost their jobs and they've spent a decade and didn't, didn't never were able to recover the ground that they lost during during that period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, that was, yeah. I was going to say, that was definitely my family. We definitely had to turn some things around. And, and I just, that's why I remember this crisis uh, is because of how much it affected our family afterwards. Um, but yeah. I, I believe we have, Emily has one more question and I have one more question. And I'm not an expert in economics, but... Does it seem in a way that student loans kind of mirror what what happened with this financial crisis, with the home mortgage financial crisis? Well, yes, that's why I mentioned it earlier. I Mm -hmm. don't think that student loans have the same. I don't think they're as embedded in the machinery of the financial world as mortgages were. Mm -hmm. So I don't think they have the same potential to take down the financial system. Mm -hmm. But I think they have the potential to do a lot of a lot of financial damage. But more to the point to me, what's going on with student loans is 
another example of how to breed cynicism in the American population because you're told, do anything you can to get an education, take out debt, then you'll be able to get a good job and you'll be able to pay, pay this back. And this whole rise of high interest student loans and for-profit colleges where you come out of them with all this debt and with a degree that is essentially worthless. And if you can get a job at all, it's a job of minimum wage that will never, never um, enable you to pay back this debt. And the debt can't be discharged in bankruptcy. It'll be with you for the rest of your life. It'll get taken out of your social security if you make it that far. I mean, that's just, there, there are people, there are companies who have come up with clever ways to, to play on people with, with, with student debt. And I think it is both very destructive to those individuals destructive financially in a broader sense if a lot of those loans go go bankrupt somebody has to pick up the tab but also just destructive in this big philosophical sense in the fiber of america Mm-hmm. And, and so my last question for you is, and this is kind of a, a personal interest question, a sort of um, debunking, if you will. Um, you know, I hear a lot of people uh, on social media will talk about, you know, what, as you watch gas prices rise and, and lower, um, you know, they say that that's, a, you know, a telltale sign of, of uh, representing how our economic, uh, the economic stability in our country is going. And, you know, as soon as... Um, President Biden has taken office. People saw those those gas prices rise. So I'm wondering if if people are correct on this is seeing, you know, the rise or lowering of gas prices an actual accurate representation on how our economy is doing. No. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, the, the, the price of oil is set on global markets, so it has much to do with terrorism somewhere in Africa destroying mm. uh, oil refinery or a problem in a pipeline bursting that then sends shutters through global oil markets and causes prices to spike. Uh, it has a lot to do with where interest rates are and whether U.S. fracking companies can afford to raise the billions of dollars in debt they need in order to keep their production of oil high. Um, you could even view in some ways low oil prices as perhaps a bad side of excess in, in, in some ways. So no, it, it, it doesn't. It's something that is completely beyond the control of a president. Mm. And in and of itself, lower oil prices may help the economy a little bit because they encourage people to travel, people more spending money, but it's not within a president's control to make lower oil prices lower. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Well, now I have a great response for people when I see that. <laughs> yeah, tell just, them just, say, just, just, just say bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay, well, thank you so much. We we hit the, we're at 26 minutes right now. You know, we want to be respectful of people's times, especially when they're guests. And, and it's Friday, so it's the weekend. People are ready to, to kind of chill out. Um, so I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. And, and this has been a really good conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on, and thanks for bearing with me, and have a great weekend, you guys. You You too. Thanks so much. All All right. Bye. All right, everyone, that's going to wrap up this episode of What the Politics. We release new episodes every Tuesday. You can find those on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and of course at WNCT under the Features tab under the WNCT Podcast Network and wherever else you get your podcasts. This conversation was something that has obviously 
affected a lot of people. You know, obviously me and Victoria were younger when this financial crisis happened. But like she said, you know, Victoria remembers parts of this with her family had to go through. And um, we would really love to hear feedback from you guys, what you guys thought about this podcast, any personal stories that you guys have had, what you guys went through during this financial crisis. You can always reach out to us and give us feedback on any topic that you would like to hear, any special guests that you would like to hear from, any conversation that you would like to be had here on What the Politics. Thanks so much for listening, you guys, and we will see you next time.